Welcome to episode four of Explore History's podcast, Memories of Old Warlingham, a window into village life in Victorian times. Episode four is the last in the series, and in this one we will wrap things up and see where Arthur Burdell, the author of this journal we've been recounting, uh, see where he's going to take us and um, learn a bit more about village life in the late Victorian period. So let's get started. We'll continue on from where we left off in episode three. Some of the old interesting things in the past were kept up, or rather recognized, in my boyhood days. The first of May we went round to the houses singing with garlands on sticks. All the old carters came out that day with all their horses bedecked with various coloured ribbons, rosettes, flyers, bells, and making a most attractive display. It was grand to see how many of the men loved and lived for their horses. I've known cases where the men have stood and cried when their horses were ill. Many of the old men were at the stables by five o'clock, feeding their horses a little at a time, so that it should not be nosed over too much before eating, and to make sure that they had a good meal before they started out to work for the day. On May 29th, we all had sprigs of oak leaves in our buttonholes in memory of King Charles. We called it Stick Shack Day. What that meant, I never knew. In the other Books of Common Prayer, there are six pages of prayer and thanksgiving for the King's restoration, with the following heading. A form of prayer and thanksgiving to Almighty God for having put an end to the Great Rebellion, by the restitution of the King and Royal Family, and the restoration of the government after many years' interruption, which unspeakable mercies were wonderfully complicated upon the 29th of May, in the year 1660, and in memory thereof that day, and every year is by Act of Parliament appointed to be forever kept holy. The Act of Parliament made in the 12th and confirmed in the 30th year of King Charles II for the observations of the 29th day of May yearly as a day of public thanksgiving is to be read publicly in all churches at morning prayers, immediately after the Nicene Creed on the Lord's Day next, before every such 29th of May, and notice shall be given for the dire observation of the second of the said day. On November the 5th, we had a first-class bonfire on the old recreation ground. We boys collected a lot of bushes, wagon loads were brought by farmers, and Mr. Ward brought out wagon loads of shavings from his carpenter shop. A guy was made and fixed on a pole at the top of the heap. Most of the boys wore masks which could be purchased in the village for the modest sum of one penny. Fireworks were also available in plenty. Men and boys paraded the village, duly made up in all sorts of dress and black faces by those who had no masks. I remember one gentleman who used to get awfully annoyed if any of the men or boys went singing at his house. On one occasion, a gang of rough men, made up, went and sang at his house on purpose to annoy him. We boys stood back a good way in the drive to watch the proceedings. The old man came out in a great rage to order them off, but they sang the louder, and one man shouted at him. This exasperated the old man, for he shouted out, I will fire on you, you ruffian. The men then thought that discretion was the better part of valor and made a rapid retreat. A prayer for the deliverance from gunpowder treason was also included in this old book of common prayer as follows. A form of prayer and thanksgiving to be used yearly upon the 5th day of November for the happy deliverance of King James I and the three estates of England from the most traitorous and bloody intended massacre of gunpowder and also for the happy arrival of His Majesty King William on this day, for the deliverance of our church and nation. The minister of every parish shall give warning to his parishioners publicly in the church at morning prayer, the Sunday before for the due observation of the said day, and after morning prayer or preaching upon the said fifth day of November, shall read publicly, 
distinctly and plainly the act of parliament made in the third year of king james i for the observation of it in eighteen seventy seven there was a brick field in what is now known as adcock's field both reds and stock brick were both burnt here a kiln was used for burning the former the payne family excelled at this work an old cottage stood at the top end of the track leading to tithe pit shaw lane this old trackway was early on recognized as a proper road the two hedges at the white leaf end which are still intact define the road and the farmers who owned or rented the land alongside were compelled to trim these hedges by the godston council on one occasion the parish council stepped in and prevented one of the farmers from removing the flints from this road this brickfield closed down when i was very young later mr george wren started a brickfield at the rear of chelsea place which served for a number of years after that he started another alongside bug hill now lee's road here he got into trouble with the tenant of may's place in that the smoke and fumes from the clamps damaged the fruit trees etc he obtained an injunction against mr wren to abate this nuisance mr wren had perforce to cart his unburnt bricks turned green to a new site at the top of hullaloo wood where they were burnt for a good time on the day the above lawsuit was settled all warlingham was agag to hear the result flags etc were waiting to be erected and verses were written out one verse i remember was as follows give three cheers for warlingham and all its working men with three cheers for the brickfield and one for mr wren the brickmaking had a great fascination for me as i worked there for one season the man who made the bricks and his mate were termed the molder and the flatty a boy who placed the bricks on a long spur a barrow was called the page boy and the man who wheeled the loaded barrows out into the field and cleverly unloaded them in long even and level rows was the bearer off the man who mixed the clay which had been washed earlier on and run into special built-up earth containers with fine ashes on top then wheeled it into the hill for the molder to use was called the temperer when the bricks on the hacks these were the frames in which they stood out in the field were partly dry they were systematically divided giving them a more open space for drawing the bricks being then erected in zigzag rows were quite attractive to look upon this process was termed skintling when dry they were hauled to the big clamps cased with underburnt bricks termed smuzzing up and finally burnt after Ms. mr wren had retired came mr tappenden who reopened the derelict brickfield in adcock's field now all is closed down and finished for good one interesting thing of the past was a horse sleigh driven by mr king at the firs this was a great attraction in winter time to see it come dashing along with all its bells announcing its approach care had to be taken when pulling up the spirited horse which he had as one could not stop dead as it would then cause a calamity by running into the horse hawks Another interesting thing now gone was the crowds of horses gathered round the old smithy to be roughed in slippery weather in winter time. What a joy it was to watch the hefty blacksmiths wield their sledgehammers and to hear the attractive music given out by the three hammers going at once on one anvil. Mr. Blanchard kept three or four smiths at, at times, and in those days they started work at six o'clock in the morning. What a pleasure we boys had watching the sparks fly, and oft times we were allowed to work the bellows. There was an old hollow elm tree on the strip of a green opposite the forge. Mr. Blanchard used this at times for bending the iron to be used for the new tires, for cartwheels, etc. This too was an attractive thing to watch, the new tires being burnt on and driven tight home onto the fellows so that they were fixed firm when the iron cooled. 
Blanchards were the best smiths, and bakers the best wheelwrights. The work these latter turned out was both attractive and beautiful, for it was a joy indeed to see the lovely lined work of the wagons and carts done by the Baker family. Walter Blanchard was a first-class shoeing smith. He shod the racehorses at Maiden Park, some of which were derby winners. He and I went to school together. One occasion I went with him to the Bath and West of England show, which for some reason that year was held at Croydon. There I saw him win one of his prizes for shoeing. I was intrigued when he went to cut off his length of iron in 16-inch lengths for the shoes. Even this counted for and or against you in the contest. Even the shoe had to be slightly splayed to be in alignment with the horse's hoof. This gave the horse a perfect bearing on the ground. That is a very important matter, especially in racehorses, to get a perfect fit, and what is more, look one, when viewed by the critical eye of the judges. In fact, it amounts to this, you've got to know and be master of your job. When Mr. Marriott had seen the debt cleared off for the alteration of the church, he left Worlingham and Mr. Macaulay had been curate at Chelsham, became vicar at Worlingham. He was a worthy successor to Mr. Marriott and carried out a tremendous lot of work that was necessary in the parish. First, he was faced with the threat to have the old almshouses condemned. His appeal for help to the parish brought in enough money to put the almshouses in a good habitable condition. Put his whole heart into this to make the job a success and also restored to a great extent the old mission room, also which had got into a very dilapidated state. When finished, it was used to good purpose for the parish. A debating society was started. It was a very exciting asset, being well attended and creating great fun. Mother's meetings and under Mrs. Tugo were held here and many other meetings including a Bible class for men, which was as good as the debating society at times. The old mission room was a village school before the new Education Act came into force in 1870, or thereabouts. About this time, a rifle range was built alongside the small lane leading to the scout's hut, which was known as Driv Lane by all the old inhabitants. A church lads brigade was run in the one-time old chapel, which the church now rented for Sunday school, etc., the Workmen's Club was built a most useful addition to our parish. I attended a political meeting there when the Right Honourable Henry Chaplin delivered an address. I was attracted to him by reading of the very interesting episodes he had in his life. Mr. Macaulay's greatest work was the organising of the church hall. A good bit of work. This was built by Mr. John Quittenton, as was the Workmen's Club also. Both were carried out in a first-class manner. A reading room was established in the rooms now used as a cycle shop by Mr. Buss during Mr. Marriott's time. It was well patronized at first. We had some very happy times there. Even concerts were held, and we ran a slate club in conjunction with the club. I laugh even now over one incident relating to this club. Stewards had to be appointed and renewed each month. Towards the end, nearly all the members stayed away on certain nights when new stewards were to be elected. The night in question, there was only two of us, beside the outgoing steward and secretary present. We two decided not to stand, just for mischief. So the secretary began to call all the names of the many members liable for stewardship. So every time our names were called, we, like Molotov, answered no. On one round, my mate gave in. And when the seventh round was ended, a halt was called. The secretary saying, we cannot go on like this. They won't pay the fines when they hear of this. A strong appeal was made to me to stand steward, but I flatly refused. So one of the outgoing stewards elected to stand for another month. My, wasn't there a shindy when the result got abroad. There was never no lacking of stewards after that. You see, the money paid in fine was of real benefit to the club. 
Another incident attached to this club created more mirth for me. An elderly man by name George Crane, a wee bit simple, used to often walk over from down in Kent to Worlingham, and, for the, and as the reading room was open all day, oftentimes with no one there, old George used to creep in and sit down at the piano and strum for an hour on end. No one took any notice, even when they saw him. One day I was at Fairshields and saw old George returning from Worlingham in the afternoon. The sight of him did me. He had long white hair and a long beard. The Worlingham men had got him in the reading room. They cut off half his hair off his head in like manner. I had seen a similar trick done to one of the old threshers years before, late at night in Mr. Barshard's forge. They cut off all this man's beard, then shaved him clean. After that, they started cutting his hair with horse clippers. To see these clippers cut a clean track through his long hair was too much for my gravity, especially so when they finished each course upwards just short of the crown of his head, leaving a long top knot which they refused to cut off, in spite of all his expostulations. About some still went uncut, after they had told him they had finished it. He had to get a man to cut it off next morning. Another old man who lived at Hamsey, Green used to stay out late every night at the leather bottle to the great annoyance of his wife, who was continually nagging him for his indiscretion. Arriving home one night later than usual, he found his wife had retired for the night, and judging from the mumbled sounds proceeding from the bedroom, he sensed that there was a special reception awaiting him. But he was equal to the occasion. Seizing an umbrella, he mounted the stairs, and opening the umbrella, he entered the bedroom. At this strange action, she was taken aback. What on earth does this mean, she asked. Well, replied the old man, I'm preparing for a storm, my old duck. So with that, it brings us to the end of Arthur Burdell's journal. Um, what can we say about this? What is the value of this document? Like many documents of its type, it can be quite difficult to use or to appreciate because it's not something that was written for outside consumption. This was somebody writing down his thoughts and feeling his memories um, and doing it in just kind of a haphazard way, whatever came to mind. As you can see where he jumps around quite a bit from topic to topic and even going from um, you know, later events to back to his boyhood. So it is a bit jumbled at times. Uh, as a source, it could be difficult to use um, also. Uh, quite often, there was no punctuation in it. Um, he had a weird way of not using capitalization at the start of sentences. So sometimes, very difficult to tell when a sentence ended and began. Um, so there are challenges like that, but you could still see that he really was a, a very intelligent person. He was a good writer. Um, he really expressed himself well. And I think what stood out for me more than anything is just the way that he was so interested in all the people and the places, the things that went on in his community. He had a really good eye for that. Maybe he would have made a good anthropologist because he was always looking. But it also helps that during his life, he seems to have held quite a few different jobs, quite a few different positions. And so he experienced a great deal and he really kind of relished it. You get a real sense from him that he was really interested in the most minute little things and courses that he took in the way that somebody did their work. He was fascinated by watching blacksmiths, although it is pretty cool to watch that. Um, all these sorts of things really had a, an appeal to him. And so he was a very good one to be watching and to be commenting on it. And I think the result is that we get a real in-depth, very interesting look at what village life was like in the late Victorian period. We, we hear a great deal about the kind of festivals and activities that they did. And a lot of them, in the, in this last episode, 
a lot that were holdovers from an earlier time. People still were you know, doing things. Some of them still exist, of course. We still celebrate uh, you know, Guy Fawkes Day on November 5th. They were doing it then. And so it's kind of interesting to see that some of those activities have continued when others have fallen by the wayside. What really strikes me, though, more than anything, perhaps, is not only this sort of window into village life and the good, the bad, and the ugly of what it was like, but it really tells us a lot about how life was changing at this time. You know, this is getting towards the, you know, the late Victorian period. We're moving towards into the second industrial revolution. Very quickly, you know, at the time that he is writing, we're starting to see telephones, electrification, the automobile, all of those things would come in very soon after um, the period he's talking about. And so this was a period of, of enormous change. And what we see is that the village life was still very much like it had been in the early 19th century, or maybe even the 18th century. Yet it also was feeling these forces on it, particularly as London was getting bigger. Places like Croydon were expanding. And they're being influenced by this. So we see pressure on the village to expand. There's new houses, new roads being put in place. There's a lot more to do, a lot more clubs and activities are getting in. And as he talks about at one point, um, a real push to create um, an increased literacy. And so opportunities were opening up, yet at the same time, the village was kind of frozen in a, an earlier time. And so it's this real contrast between the two worlds, the old village life and the sort of new, more modernizing uh, town which was emerging, I think, which is really interesting. And it tells us an enormous amount about the Victorian period and the kind of things that many people struggled with, that they had to go through. Some people, quite happy to remain illiterate, they got on with the job, they were very good at what they at their craft, whether it was baking or um, you know, being a carter or a smith. Um, they all had skills, and they got by just fine with that. But it's changing, and in many ways I see it similar to what we are at now. You think of the older generation, and, and, um, and some people that I personally know that still don't have computers. Our whole world is being you know, focused on that, and you need those skills. The same thing was happening then. They were just different skills. People were now being forced that you had to be lettered. You had to be a much more sort of worldly and able to travel and move about for work, um, for different activities, and just to be more involved in your community. So this is a rapidly changing world, one which was transforming village life. Yet we still see a lot of the, the same sort of you know, quaint things going on, the same kind of festivities. And, and it really is a window into not only the period that he's writing about, but an earlier age as well. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I certainly have. It's been great fun. I love documents like this. Um, they're really rich and a, an amazing source of history. Um, if you enjoyed it, please like um, our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram. Um, that concludes the uh, Memories of Old Wallingham. We'll have another podcast coming up very soon, so keep watch. Uh, it's going to be a good one.